0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Howdy, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. There's Jerry Jerome Rowland. And this is Stuff You Should Know, folks. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, Can I do a little plug right off the beginning to sort of explain why I got this idea? Yeah, yeah, sure. Because this episode is on the Grand Ole Opry in oh. Nashville, Tennessee, the longest running radio broadcast in U.S. history. And they sent you a check. <laughs> <laughs> no, I got a um, an email, uh, geez, I feel like a long time ago from a Stuff You Should Know listener and a movie crusher named Joseph, uh, I'm going to pronounce it, 10L, T-I-N-N-E-L-L, and he is the content and programming director of WSM Radio. Wow. Which uh, you'll learn all about that here. Uh, and he he runs the show, and he started a thing. We kind of had some back and forth over the years about um, me coming to the Ryman uh, to see a show. And he's like, mm-hmm. I could i have a mention on Movie Crush. He said, I can get you backstage if you ever want to come to Nashville and go to a show at the Ryman. And so we've been communicating for a long time. And then this past year, he started uh, what's called the WSM Playlist, which is – they turned the radio station over to someone for an hour and let them DJ and program. And he offered that to me, and I did it. Wow. And, Why did you uh,
1: tell everybody about it on I, Stuff I'm You Show? I'm doing Shina? right
0: now. Oh, when is it going to play? <laughs> it is, it's, you know, you record it so they can release it whenever.
1: Uh huh. So you, you did covers of all the songs that you wanted on the playlist. <laughs> no, I'm no, confused.
0: No. I just DJed, basically. Uh, it I is going gotcha. to air 5 p.m. Central time, July 1st. Nice. At five PM Central on WSM radio, home of the Grand Ole Opry. Sure. Uh you can find it online at WSMRadio.com. dot com. Just hit the listen live button on July first at five PM Central. You'll hear me spinning records from Uncle Tupelo and Bonnie Prince Billy and Dolly Parton and wow. Johnny Cash. Uh I can't remember who else. A lot of a lot of great stuff.
1: That's awesome. Did you do that thing where you like you just held the one uh like uh, can up to your ear from <laughs> The yeah.
0: headphones? No, I was a little nervous, though. And I felt I was a little stiff and loosened up and then sent it to him. And I was like, hey, I feel like I didn't do great at first. And he said, yeah, you were a little stiff. And he said, why don't you redo the first, they call them all these radio lingos, like ins and outs and you know, raps and things like that, because you got to sure. talk about the last song and then the next song. And so he let me redo the first kind of set of those. Oh, and, wow. And hopefully I'm a little more loose.
1: It's always better, the second
0: take. It is. Willie Nelson's in there. I got some good stuff.
1: That's really cool, man. Congratulations, Chuck. I feel like you finally made it. You're a member of the Grand Ole Opry
0: <laughs> No, no, no. We'll talk all about that. That's a whole different deal.
1: <laughs> so, um, we are talking Grand Ole Opry, uh, and now I'm nervous about it because the station manager is going to be listening.
0: And they're what was promoting this, too, by the way, this episode. <laughs> what was his name? Uh, Joseph Tennell.
1: Joseph, prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> He's a nice Um, guy. I'm sure he'll be kind in his
0: criticisms.
1: (laughs) He's a Stuff You Should Know listener and a movie crusher, too. Of course, he's a nice guy. He gets it. So, we're talking Grand Ole Opry today, uh, and you said something that I find just fascinating, that it is—I don't know if you said in the world, but it is the oldest, longest-running live radio broadcast program in the entire world— it's been broadcasting the Grand Ole Opry, which is a radio show. A lot of people think it's, it's a music venue, and it is. But really, the music venue kind of grew mm-hmm. out of the radio show. It, all, it began as a radio show um, all the way back in 1925. So it's coming pretty close to its 100th anniversary. And at all that time, it's only missed one Saturday night broadcast, one live Saturday night broadcast. Every other Saturday night, all the way back to 1925, you could tune in to WSM Nashville, AM 650, and hear the Grand Ole Opry radio program, which is, uh, I mean, hats off to that. I don't care if you think country-western music is as bad as experimental smooth jazz. Doesn't matter. (laughs) You still have to tip your hat to that.
0: Yeah, tip that Stetson. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should tell them why that they missed that one broadcast it was uh, after the assassination of Martin Luther King the city of Nashville and I think most of Tennessee probably was under curfew so they had to rerun a program and I think they did a live show the next day or later or something during the day er-
1: earlier that day before right. curfew I believe they okay. did a show so they still did a show that day they, they just missed the live broadcast that night but all the other ones dating back to 1925 they made pretty neat
0: Yeah, I actually went – when I was a kid, we went to – it was an amusement park called Opryland USA, which is now, I think, sort of a shopping center mall kind of thing. Uh, But back then, it was an amusement park, like a country – it was pre-Dollywood. Oh, you went
1: to the Opryland USA? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay.
0: Yeah, and so we also went to the Grand Ole Opry house, and I don't know if it was a Saturday show – I know they do shows on Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, Mm -hmm. but um, I don't remember much about it, but I do remember being in that building and seeing the uh, sort of barn-shaped motif Mm -hmm. stage, and Mm -hmm. that's kind of all I remember. I was probably no more than six or seven.
1: I don't know what it is, but there is nothing more cozy than a building within a building.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know? <laughs> sure. The I love The little barn that kind motif is cool looking.
1: I definitely love the, the stage uh, for the Grand Ole Opry for sure.
0: All right. So the Grand Ole Opry started out, um, out of indirectly out of Chicago. There was something called the National Barn Dance, which was a radio broadcast out of Chicago playing country music, uh, way back in the day. And it had a really big following, but it didn't reach Nashville. So the former, um, A former DJ from there named George Hay went to Nashville, became the station manager at WSM, and pitched what he called um, the barn dance.
1: Yeah. Which which was the same thing. It sounded a lot like national barn dance, but he's like, but here's the difference. We dropped the national.
0: Yeah, it was kind of like a proto hee-haw. Yeah. In that they had, it was a variety show. They had music, they had dancers, they had comedy bits and sketches, um, all with that sort of countryfied flavor. Um, I almost
1: wonder if Hee Haw was influenced by the Grand Ole Opry show. <laughs> I think a little bit. But it was, so it was on WSM, as you were saying, the, the barn dance is what, you know, Grand Ole Opry radio program was originally called for the first couple of years. And that guy, George Hay, who pitched it and hosted it, had, had been at that radio station in Chicago. But now he worked for WSM, which was actually an insurance company's radio station.
0: Yeah, it's a very strange story.
1: It is, but they, they were they were the headquarters uh, in the National Life and Accident Insurance Company, headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee. And I apparently one of the executives there was really into this new technology radio and was high enough up in the company that he got the company to start broadcasting from the fifth floor. Um, and so that's where that first early program was broadcast from was this insurance company's um, – headquarters, like office building, on Saturday nights.
0: Yeah. And if you're wondering what WSM stands for, because it was from the insurance (laughs) company, it stands for We Shield Millions, Mm -hmm. still (laughs) known as WSM. It's really funny. I tried to find out who this executive was, but I couldn't. Couldn't look at it.
1: Yeah. That's, you know, it's crazy how people can become lost to history, even though their story is just so wrapped up in something that's everywhere. All it takes is for them to just get knocked out of one, you know, one popular article, and
0: right, everybody else who
1: picks up on that after that, <laughs> yeah, they're not coming back, you know. All
0: right, so the barn dance uh, they had their first broadcast on November eighth, nineteen twenty five. Uh, had Uncle Jimmy Thompson, who was a Tennessee musician, and won a fiddling competition in Texas, it was a big, big hit, and within just a few months, there were people literally coming down to this insurance building to watch live through the uh, the glass walls of the studio. Very cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, it, all this reminds me of um, Oh Brother Where Art Thou when yeah, they go totally into the recording did. studio. I think it's very similar to that kind of thing, yeah. right? Uh-huh. So, like, they kind of knew, like, well, this, is, this might be a thing. Like, this is kind of a... People are showing up, you know, in person on Saturday night at an insurance company's offices to watch this stuff. And it kind of started to take off... Pretty quickly, and it was, I think, 1927 when George Hay famously said um, about this preceding like uh, radio or classical music appreciation hour that we've been listening to uh, music largely from the Grand Opera. From now on, we will present the Grand Ole Opry, and apparently everybody thought that was hysterical, and that became the name of the show from that time on, I think in December of 1927. Very cool. It is pretty cool, yeah. And so there were these weekly performances every Saturday um, at the National Life and Accident Insurance Company's headquarters. But more and more people started to show up. And I saw somewhere, Chuck, I love this. It's like a full circle irony. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the time, the the leaders the of Nashville, the heads of business and um, a lot of the other, you know, the politicians, the wealthy people who were running the show in Nashville, were trying to move the city's image in the exact opposite direction of what they were doing every Saturday night at the uh, insurance company's headquarters. Like they were trying to basically say Nashville is not – no, no mountain folk here, oh, really? no hoedowns going on here. Just we're just like every, we're like New York. We're the New York of the middle of America, oh, that kind of thing. Interesting. And they really resented the Grand Old Opry because it was getting more and more popular. Mm-hmm. And then finally the Grand Old Opry became so powerful and such an institution in Nashville that it in large part became the leaders of the city. And it shaped Nashville. Like, Nashville wasn't Music City until the Grand Ole Opry came along. And they were trying to take it in a different direction. The Grand Ole Opry took it in that that direction of basically establishing, like, the headquarters of country western music uh, and put Nashville on the map in that very legitimate way.
0: It had three consecutive mayors killed. (laughs) It did. To accomplish this feat. That's right. All poisoned. (laughs) Oh, no. That's not true at all. (laughs) people who run the Grand Ole Opry that are listening right now. (laughs) Wink, wink, yeah. I do feel like someone's (laughs) looking over our shoulder. All right, so, uh, you know what, let's take a break, and then we'll talk about kind of the change in venues over the years and how that represents the rise of the Grand Ole Opry in prominence, right after this. So you're you're throwing these hoedowns in an insurance building. It's going well. People are showing up. Mayors are dropping like flies trying to fight this thing to be big city, <laughs> New York City and Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they said, we got to move. So they said, all right, first thing we'll do is we'll move into an actual auditorium space here in the same building. That worked for a little while. Yeah. Then in 34, they moved to the Hillsborough Theater, uh community playhouse now called the Belcourt Theater, Um, started selling some ads, making a little dough. Mm -hmm. I think two years later, they outgrew that, moved to the Dixie Tabernacle, which was a religious hall, um, sort of an old-timey sort of revival house. And they were there for a few years before they said, you know what, I don't like this wild audience coming in here uh, on the drink and acting all crazy and dancing in the aisle, so get out of the Dixie Tabernacle. Mm -hmm. And they moved to the War Memorial uh, Auditorium, which is when they started selling tickets for a quarter apiece in 1939 and started, I think they even got um, a spot on NBC. They were in a movie. Things started happening in a big way.
1: Yeah, it was a big deal in 39 when NBC started broadcasting them on the radio uh, to a national audience. I mean, first of all, it's it's now it's national and that certainly legitimizes it. But the fact that one of the the big broadcasters at the time mm-hmm. thought it was an important enough show to to pick it up and sh- and you know send it out to everybody else that's a that's a huge. And this is you know less than twenty years after it's about fifteen years after the Grand Ole Opry first went on the air. Yeah, that's pretty impressive stuff. Um, and then they moved on. I think nineteen forty three. To the Ryman Theater, which is one of the places that the Grand Ole Opry is synonymous with, right?
0: Yeah, and that's—I'm dying to go to a show there. I'll, I'll make it there at some point, and hopefully get that backstage tour from Joseph. But uh, it was—it's a legendary theater. It was there for 30 years, um, 2,300 seats. It's the mother church of country music, and I think they raised the price to 80 cents there. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about how the Ryman still figures in today. But it was, uh, that's when things really, I mean, if you're in a 2,300-seat venue, filling it up a few times a week, that's your your big time at that point. I think they, um, the regular cast played Carnegie Hall in the 40s, went on tour in Europe, and they were starting to birth some real sort of superstars like Roy Acuff.
1: Yeah, and Minnie Pearl came along in 1942. She's uh, just as closely linked to that period of the, um, the Grand Ole Opry as Roy Acuff is for sure. Um, I was reading about her. Did you know that whole thing was just a total put-on? That She was like a college-educated woman from a well-to-do family?
0: Yeah, it was It was a character. She's, I she mean, was, I fell uh, for it hook, line, and sinker. She was Larry the Cable Guy.
1: Yes, exactly. She was. (laughs) She was Larry the Cable Guy prior to Larry the Cable Guy. But I was like, I know she was in a commercial that I loved when I was a kid. I was like, I think it was Spick and Span. And I looked it up, and sure enough. Was it? Thank you, Internet. There's a 1982 Spick and Span commercial where she shows up and shows this, this lady that she can get her linoleum floors back to looking new with Spick and Span. It was great.
0: That's funny what hangs in the memory, right?
1: It really does. That and then my other association with Minnie Pearl is um, that Deb Milkman song, Punk Rock Girl, where they'll name their their daughter Minnie Pearl. Oh, right. <laughs> that's the other that's the other Minnie Pearl thing. <laughs>
0: um, so there's a couple of ways you can get on stage and play at the Grand Ole Opry. Um, most people are invited to play as a guest just on a random individual show, and that's a great, great honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they have – I mentioned the cast earlier – They have what's called members. They're the cast. They're these regular uh, performers who are invited to become a member. Um, I think publicly, once you're invited, an existing member will ask you to join them live on the air during a broadcast, kind of as the the big coming out party, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And being a member is – it's a really big deal like uh they take a lot of time to add members they only add maybe a couple a year uh, yeah there's there's I think 65 current active members I'm sorry 65 total uh, nine of which no longer perform or have officially retired
1: okay but they're uh, still they're still considered members of the
0: option they're considered I think you kind of have to pass away to officially oh, be see. taken off unless you run a foul which we'll talk about that as well
1: I gotcha. Um, So, yeah, there's there's, basically, I mean, to become a member of the Grand Ole Opry is an enormous honor. Like, it's a really big deal. There are people who um, are just huge country superstars that Mm -hmm. are not members of the Grand Ole Opry. They might be invited to come play a show or something like that, but they're not members of the Grand Ole Opry. If you're a member of the Grand Ole Opry, basically, the impression I have is that you're considered the the uh, the guard of country music f- is, is one way to put it in a really confusing way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that go into it. And they, I mean, it sounds like it's, you know, they talk about you being successful and you being connected and you being committed. That's a big part of it. And we'll get mm-hmm. to that in a second. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like there's not just sort of one set of criteria where like, hey if you have so many number 1 hits or so much music sales it's like a bunch of stuff decided by people like yeah, no, uh, th- subjectively and objectively
1: right i think also in some cases it's a it's a judgment that's passed on your style of country music like they might not like it at the time maybe, maybe. They think it sounds too poppy back in the day they might have th- thought it sounded too rock and roll mm-hmm. um like there's a there's a definite like like you said subjectivity to it as well as objectivity um but if you if you do get that that um that invitation um you're expected to come play 12 shows a year uh 12 saturday nights i should say a year um to maintain your uh, your um membership. Uh and I think also you uh have to sell cookies in the in February to help raise funds.
0: Is that true? No. <laughs> I it wouldn't surprise me man.
1: That's the Girl Scouts.
0: No, it would not surprise me because they they do expect a lot of participation and not just on show nights. They expect you You're to right. go to a lot of shows. Yeah. They expect you just to kind of be there a lot. Um, I think in the 50s and 60s, uh, they were at, tw- I mean, from its inception up into the f- uh, 50s and 60s, they required 26 shows a year, uh, which is that's like, that's a lot, man. That's, that's like half your weekend shows, basically. Right.
1: Yeah. If and you're if you a want touring to go artist, out and tour. Yeah. If you want to go tour, that's, that's a significant amount of time that you have to dedicate and uh, they they finally knocked it down to 12 which is still pretty significant especially if you don't live in Nashville but uh it's that's much more manageable than 26 you know
0: yeah they knocked it down to 20 in 1964 after they balked at 26 mm-hmm. and then 1964 it took i think in 2000 they finally knocked it down to 12
1: oh really it took that long huh
0: yeah it took a while
1: wow so uh, over the years, the, the membership of the Grand Ole Opry has been, you know, there's a lot of people that, that you would expect uh, who were members, like everybody from Roy Acuff, as we said earlier, and Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass, um, Patsy Cline, Hank Williams was for a while, Johnny Cash, uh, Barbara Mandrell, Reba. Reba's actually playing, what's the date today? Do you know? Is it the 22nd?
0: Yes, it Reba's is.
1: playing the Grand Ole Opry tonight. Isn't that cool?
0: I love it. And listen, to you go in with just the one name. Oh, well, it's Reba we're
1: talking about here. <laughs> I watched her T V show pretty frequently, so I'm on a first name basis with her.
0: I never saw it. Was it good?
1: It actually was good. Yeah. She was cute. Yeah, she was a a good good actress for a non actor. She I, was I a think, good act yeah. sorry. For she was a good actor for a non actor. Um and she really I think I really came to appreciate Reba first in Tremors.
0: Oh, I loved her in that. And we can She's say that because we were bad actors for non actors.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yes, we know. We know what we're talking about for sure.
0: Uh, who else these days? Randy Travis, Allison Krause, Alan Jackson, mm-hmm. Brad Paisley, I think Keith Urban, Darius Rucker, and Blake Shelton. Yeah. And most recently, the most recent addition is Lady A.
1: Which used to be Lady Annabellum. That's right. In, until the George Floyd murder and ensuing protests, they were like,
0: no, nah, we're
1: going to drop Annabellum. Anab- which hats off to them, but they went to Lady A, um, which they were probably like, this is cool, this sounds good. But then the Seattle blues singer, Lady A, who's been performing for 30 years, is like, um, I'm not really okay with this. But I'm not sure that they're changing their name again anytime soon.
0: That's right, uh after you are invited to perform uh now that you get your name on the wall, and I think it was Blake Shelton who actually started the new tradition of hanging his own plaque on the wall because he was so excited, apparently he grabbed the plaque and went mm-hmm. and did it himself mm-hmm. uh during the ceremony, which is uh which is fairly adorable, I think I don't know much he's, about the guy, but he's I like an that excitable kind of spot. feller, yeah,
1: he's married to um
0: yeah. That lady, no Gwen doubt. Gwen
1: Stefani, there you go. <laughs> yeah. She's not a back girl, by the way.
0: Was that uh, was that one of their songs?
1: Yeah, that was one of her songs. Okay, I don't know. B-A-N-A-N-A-S, something like that. I have yeah. no rhythm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you sang this episode. That's all I wanted.
1: So, um, should we take another break? Is it time?
0: Yeah, let's take another break, and we'll talk about just how this institution has evolved over the years.
1: okay chuck so you you mentioned how the institutions evolved over the years and you can't really be like the the ongoing voice or foundation or home of a uh, genre of music if the genre of music keeps evolving and you don't you know right but there's like kind of this tension for the Grand Ole Opry as well because it is this institution. It, it it can't and shouldn't just go chasing every trend. It needs to kind of wait and see, see if there if you know some change that comes along is real change, um, and all while protecting like the musical roots of this very proud tradition of country western music it's not a really enviable position and you know luckily they've had what seems to be a a pretty good succession of members and management who have done a fairly good job of overseeing that task Um, but being an institution it's also been kind of uh, icebergian in its movements of like change especially when a, a major change comes along to music like when rock and roll came
0: along. Yeah, I mean, you start out as folk music and hoedown music and bluegrass stuff and then honky-tonk stuff, and eventually the electric guitar is going to make an appearance, and they had a decision to make because uh, drums and horns and electric guitars were all banned for many years, and I think electric guitar even was allowed before drums and horns were allowed. And all it takes is kind of one performer – To break the mold for people to like it, which is key, and then for the management to say, you know, maybe we need to start letting drum sets in here, because it was that that slap bass is kind of what kept that percussive time for that kind of music for many years, and drums were just, you know, not something they wanted in there. They were the
1: tool of the devil.
0: Yeah. um So you can imagine when rock and roll. Comes in and people like Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis come around, Mm -hmm. it's a big deal and they didn't want any part of it. I think Elvis was invited to play once, but he certainly was never invited uh, for membership. And then Jerry Lee Lewis, um, he got a little revenge in that he was not treated, he felt like he was sort of shunned by Nashville and the country music establishment, even though he sort of did some country western, mostly kind of blazing rock and roll piano tunes Mm -hmm. and so when he finally played there uh i think in 1973 they said all right you can come and play we're inviting you but don't play any rock and roll and he said okay just put me up on that stage Mm -hmm. got up on the stage and said let me tell you something about jerry lee lewis ladies and gentlemen i'm a rock and rolling country and western rhythm and blues singing -er." (laughs) mfr
1: yeah mother lover
0: yes and they did not uh take kindly to that uh the only reason he wasn't banned is because the audience loved it. I think
1: have you ever read the strange and mysterious death of Mrs. Jerry Lee Lewis from Rolling Stone in nineteen eighty four No, you should read it. It's very eye opening and like one of those I think it was a disgraceland episode, too. yeah, I'm sure I, it was I heard the episode on that, yeah, but it's like kind of jarring yeah how you know if you're super super famous just the different kind of treatment you get even you know in the in a murder investigation you know
0: yeah i'm glad that's all changed
1: yeah i know the (laughs) 70s are crazy um but they they the fact that they didn't kick jerry lee lewis out or allowed him to come back and play some more i don't think he was ever um he was never a member right
0: no he was just invited to play
1: Okay, but he was he was invited back again was because he rocked that place that hard apparently. But there've been other people who were kicked out um for far less than that, for what than what he did. Um so there is kind of this this view from the outside of like what wh- what's the decision making process here in some of these cases? Some are just obvious. Other ones are like well, I'm not sure about that one.
0: Yeah, there was um Well, these, the birds weren't kicked out, but in the 60s with the hippie counterculture, Mm -hmm. obviously that was going to be an issue with Nashville because they had sort of a no long hairs rule. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they did invite the birds uh, because they were that kind of new brand of country rock and the crowd hated them. Um, So I don't think they came back, but it wasn't like they were kicked out. They were more or less voted out by, you know, lack of popular demand. I'll bet Um, that was
1: not a comfortable show.
0: No. I'm sure that didn't feel very good, but I'm sure Han- David Crosby had plenty of drugs to salve his to numb, soul to numb
1: <laughs> it. <laughs> right. So uh, Hank Williams was very famously kicked out. Yeah. He was a member of the Grand Old Opry, um, and he was kicked out in 1952, just a few months before he died. Um, he was kicked out because he kept missing shows. He missed two shows in one weekend because he was off drunk. Yeah. Um, and they were like, "You, you just, we can't have this any longer." Um, I think we should do a whole episode on him someday.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean anyone who kind of drinks himself to get to death before they're thirty is intriguing at the very least. Yeah. Very sad story.
1: Yeah, agreed. And then Johnny Cash, he very famously sure. was kicked out of the uh the Opry as well. He met his wife June Carter Cash when they were performing both of them separately at the Grand Ole Opry one night. And he became a member for years until nineteen sixty five when he um, went nuts and destroyed, like, some lighting equipment because his mic wasn't working during a rehearsal, um, which is a little diva-ish, I think you could make the case. But it was drug fueled Uh, And they said, um, bite your tongue. And they said uh, that he, uh, he could not be a member of the Opry anymore. And they kept him that way until uh i think the 80s when he was finally invited back as a member they said okay we think you've probably cooled down
0: enough well he got sober and i think saw the error of his ways and made a bunch of big changes for the better in his life
1: i suspect that it was when he um covered that nine inch nail song that the grand Ole opry (laughs) was like this is the bomb you can come back
0: that's a great great he does some great covers on those albums yeah very sad stuff Uh, I think in 73, uh, there was a woman named Skeeter Davis who had that really big hit, The End of the World, Great Song. Mm -hmm. Um, And she got a little political. Uh, Earlier in the day, she was at a shopping mall and saw some cops arresting some – there were some church workers sort of witnessing and doing their thing at the shopping mall, which I guess you weren't allowed to do. So the cops uh, either arrested them or at least took them out of there. And she got on stage that night and said, uh, this is something I really should share. Uh, didn't ask our manager if I could say this, but they've arrested 15 people just for telling people that Jesus loves them, and that really burdened my heart. Uh, she was a 14-year member and lost her membership and was banned, uh, reinstated a few years later, but—or uh, actually, was it—yeah, one year later. But this was—I uh, was like, well, why would they do that? It seems like the Grand Ole Opry would be way down with that message, but the cops mm-hmm. were not happy. And the police complained, and so they had to maintain that uh, thin blue line, you know.
1: Gotcha. They had to back the blue.
0: Back the blue. That's what it is.
1: And then, Chuck, in 2001, there was a really, um, I I would say, famous case when uh, Nico Case was banned. Uh, She wasn't a member of the Opry, though, I don't believe, but she was an invited um, performer, right?
0: Yeah, she played not in the Opry House. Sort of the stepping stone is to be invited to play the party plaza outside. Mm Mm-hmm and she was playing in the sweltering heat and asked for some water they couldn't get it to her asked if she could take a break they wouldn't let her take a break so she took her shirt off and finished the set in her bra and they banned her for life the only person to date who has been banned for life
1: <laughs> cuz she showed a bra
0: yeah which is um you know I, I think i think she could totally turn this on them now uh and they would probably react pretty quickly to get her back in there mm-hmm. and invite her if she, you know, if you were like you weren't weren't taking care of a woman's health on stage yeah. or a performer's health on stage uh, by giving them, you know, letting them hydrate themselves, then I think they would be like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. so, so get her she, back out here quick.
1: Yeah, and she said later in an interview that, like, this was not a stun or anything. Like, she was about to have heat stroke, and this is how she was coping with it, that she wasn't you know, trying to be cool or anything, or uh, she said she getting kicked out of the Opry wasn't punk rock. It wasn't good, or nothing good came of it. But she did say that they told her that she'd never play Nashville again, and she certainly has played Nashville, including at the Ryman a number of times too, which is kind of um, good, good comeback.
0: Yeah, I actually just bought tickets to go see her in uh, Wine Country in California in August at a winery. Very chic. Cannot wait. I can imagine. She's one of my favorites. I've seen her a bunch of times.
1: It'll probably be a nice small show, huh? Uh,
0: yeah, it's like, a you know, outdoors at a winery, sipping wine, listening to Nico Case.
1: <laughs> that's awesome.
0: Uh, Really can't wait. But she's, you know, she has a reputation for sort of that outsider sort of punk rock attitude. And I think that's why they thought, uh, yeah. some people might have thought she was trying to just stick it to the Grand Ole Opry. And she's like, no, that's not the case.
1: So, we mentioned the Ryman, and obviously, the Ryman's still around. Um, but the Grand Ole Opry moved from the Ryman in 1974, right? And to um, this, this new venue, the um, Grand Ole Opry House, that it's still in today. And it was a big deal when they moved because they'd been in the Ryman for, like, 30 years. They started to hit, like, their peak of their popularity, which mm-hmm. has plateaued really high since that time. Um, and they had their last show in March of 1974. And I read this really great article from the New York Times, of all things, um, from 1974 by Suzanne Freeman. It's called Opry Land is a Dream to Believe In. And it's about, you know, the Grand old Opry and what it meant to her growing up as a kid in Pennsylvania and um, how she ended up going to this last show and, and what it was like. Um, but as they moved to the Opryland, one of the reasons they moved was be- because of this amusement park. It was a radio show that started out playing hoedowns in the headquarters of an insurance building in Nashville, now had its own Disney-designed theme park built in 1974, and this huge 4,400-person cushioned seat, air-conditioned venue um, to, to basically celebrate the, 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 how far this, this thing had come.
0: It was pretty amazing, Um, Doubled, almost doubled in size from the Ryman, uh, and they took a little bit of the tradition with them. They cut out the six-foot circle there at center stage where the artist performs from the Ryman's floorboards, Mm -hmm. moved it over to the Grand Ole Opry house, uh, opened it big with Richard Nixon on March 16th, 74, (laughs) who uh, performed. He actually played the dulcimer in the piano yeah (laughs) saying happy birthday to his wife sure uh the Ryman very sadly fell on hard times after that and hard to believe but kind of like our our fabulous fox theater here in Atlanta was actually being talked about being demolished uh in the 70s and the 80s and there were like the fox a lot of fundraisers and a lot of people getting involved to save the Ryman and now it's you know, one of the, you know, oldest and still one of the most premier venues, mm-hmm. which uh, still hosts the Grand Ole Opry from November to January every year. They they hold it at the Ryman.
1: Oh, okay. That's pretty cool.
0: And it's called Opry at the Ryman, but it's still the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, every Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday, February through October, it's still yep. at the Grand Ole Opry house. And – um Yeah, they don't miss those shows, man. There was a flood. Cumberland River flooded in 2010. Yeah. And uh, it really damaged. Like, they had to do a lot of repairs. They even had to pull out that center circle, and that was really damaged. And they restored that, got it going again, and kept that tradition alive. So one of the things about the
1: amusement park that I was looking up is that it was closed in nineteen ninety-seven and I was reading an article about it where they were saying like it was just a bad decision that this thing was closed. Oh yeah. Because this amusement park was lucrative basically from the day it was opened to the day it was closed. It made money. It wasn't ever it wasn't underwater until that flood. Um but it was replaced <laughs> in ninety seven by a, a mega mall and even in 1997, people knew malls were starting to go away. So that was a really bad move to begin with. And then I found out the person who ran um, the uh, the company that owned the amusement park also at the same time decided that it would be best for their company to start cornering the market on online Christian music websites during the height of the dot-com bubble just before it burst. And um, this was the same person that decided to— to shut down uh, Opryland USA and replace it with the mall. So it was not not one of the great decisions of all time. But I thought this that was super interesting that it, it was fine. It just was taken away from everybody. Luckily, there's still Dollywood, so don't panic.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dolly Parton is smart. She started playing the Grand Ole Opry when she was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. She saw the writing on the wall with Opryland and uh, said, why don't I start my own? Uh, Amusement Country Music Amusement Park, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that helped drive Opryland out of business, or I guess you said they were still doing okay, but... Yeah,
1: no, it was good. I saw an, another, there was another article that basically said the, the um, Opryland made more money than uh, Dollywood its last, like, month in
0: existence. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to have to find out. It was just a
1: bad move.
0: Uh, how old I was when I we took that trip. That was us going to Opryland the grand old Opry house doing that stuff that was a quintessential uh Bryant family vacation in the 1970s
1: That's awesome. Your dad was just see being with people the whole time.
0: Totally see being with people. We probably <laughs> camped cuz I know he didn't stay in a hotel because I've literally never stayed in a hotel with my family before. Wow. Uh yeah, dude, I didn't stay in a hotel till I was except for like church trips till I was in, like out of college. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you were like tiny shampoo? I know. It was weird. I was like, they give you the stuff. <laughs> that's funny. Man, I love the Chuck Bryant saga.
0: And you know, it's interesting and not too far from yours. I think it's something about growing up in that time period that's uh we we have some common DNA. Yeah, I stayed in hotels though. We had yeah. hotels. Well, yeah, that's true. We were camp campers yeah. and we were also uh didn't have a ton of money and were also kind of cheap. I gotcha.
1: I gotcha. All those things
0: combined to enter the campground.
1: (laughs) Um, What else you got? Anything else on uh, Grand Ole Opry?
0: I got nothing else. Just check out my WSM playlist hour, July 1st, 5 p.m. Central.
1: Very nice. And hopefully this uh, fattened up the uh, WSM people to get you that backstage uh, tour of the Ryman.
0: Yeah, I mean, he even mentioned doing introductions at the Opry house, and I was like, dude, come on. Wow! Like I, you don't want to confuse and repulse the fine people of Nashville. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, uh, okay, I, you don't have anything else about the Opry. I don't have anything else about the Opry. I would say go forth and listen to the Grand Ole Opry. It's still broadcast. Um, This is how cutting edge it is. It's now on YouTube, but you can also go listen to WSM online every Saturday night. And uh, they probably broadcast the Tuesday and Friday night ones, too, but definitely Saturday. And since I said definitely Saturday, it's time for Listener
0: Mail. Uh, I'm going to call this Nearly Corrected, but not. Oh, I know this one. Hey, guys, I'm Sean. I'm a Chinese dude living in Milan, Italy, uh, and I just listened to Short Stuff Chinatown interesting and informative and by the way I, I picked this one because I had another listener right in who was not too kind about this correction and it turns out I was right so
1: <laughs>
0: that's why I'm reading it uh, probably because of the different pronunciations in Mandarin Chinese which I speak Cantonese Chinese and English I thought Chuck was wrong when he mentioned the first formally recognized Chinatown was called Little Canton at the time
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and then today Canton is known as uh, Little Gongjiao. Okay, is it Gong Zhao? Is that it? I know I said it correctly the first time,
1: but you I did. looked it up recently. So just whatever I said the first time. I'm pretty sure it was Gong Zhao. Gong okay. Zhou. Uh,
0: Gong so Zhou. I, Gong Joe.
1: Oh, man, I hope it is
0: Gong Zhou, but go ahead. What matters is that you got it the first time. Yeah, and screwed it up the second time. That's what Billy Joel always says. Get it right the first time. That's the main thing. Oh, okay. Uh, well, so he's, I,
1: yeah. he's somebody to, to model, <laughs> to follow base your life on uh so i mean man why are you bagging on billy joel
0: <laughs> i i hey i know Tough he's like the,
1: the music man but
0: um piano man
1: <laughs> i think i should have stopped talking about five minutes ago
0: okay so i immediately started writing a ha ha you're wrong email to point out that chuck was wrong but after finishing it, uh right before clicking send i had a gut feeling i should do a little bit more research luckily i did it turned out the joke is actually on me i was wrong and chuck was right all along So thank you much, uh, Sir Chuck and Sir Josh. You two American gentlemen taught a Chinese boy a lesson about his own country. By the way, Josh, you pronounced it super accurately.
1: This is how you pronounce it: Guangzhou. Guangzhou. Good job. Thank
0: you. Uh, One last secret before finishing the email: I don't like wearing headsets nor earphones, so I always play podcasts on my Google Home when I am cooking, eating, doing dishes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's so noisy when I'm cooking and doing dishes. Uh, that I can't hear it very well, so your show is one of only two podcasts that I actually listen to with headsets that I don't like because I don't want to miss anything.
1: High praise. Thank Uh,
0: you. The other one is Crime Junkie. Okay. High praise indeed. Yeah, we'll take it. Uh, And that is, sincerely, your big, if not biggest Chinese fan, Sean.
1: Sean. Thank you very much, Sean. I appreciate that. And uh, I think it's pretty sweet that you wrote into not correct us, especially when somebody was mean to Chuck. Gosh, I don't know how that one slipped past me. Yeah, you know. Um, well, if you want to get in touch with us and be nice, even if it is a correction, you don't have to be a jerk about it, you can wrap it up, spank it on the bottom, and send it off to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app.